tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. More fun stuff from the Bible. I I think it's fun. Well, let's, speaking of fun, let's begin, as we always do, with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all his angels who go about seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let us go to the big book on the coffee table. Well, the first and most obvious thing about, well, let's go to the first reading first. I was just going to jump into the gospel. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll go to the first reading first. This is St. Paul's letter to the Colossians we are starting. And let us discuss Colossae. It was a town in uh, Phrygia, in Asia Minor. And it was uh, 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 a very important city in southern Anatolia, which means Turkey. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, about a hundred miles from from uh, from Ephesus, and it was uh, uh, not a big place, but it was a, a, a very important uh, trading center, and it uh, became an episcopate, uh, a, a place of a bishop, and it uh, prospered until about 858 A.D when invaders from the East, non-Christian invaders from the East, uh, destroyed it. So um, that's kind of the history of Colossae. Uh, it was also near Laodicea, that sort of thing. And uh, it, it's near the cities mentioned uh, in the book of Revelation. So there you go. All right. Let us uh, click there and go back to the reading, just so you know where Colossae is. And it's interesting because Paul had never been there. He he says he wants to go, and uh, he's heard of their faith. Um, he, but he wrote a letter, uh, and he probably wrote this letter. The majority opinion is when he was in jail in Rome. He sent it by means of Tychicus and Onesimus, uh, and so it probably comes from his Roman imprisonment. Uh, we mentioned that, I think, yesterday. And um, he was acquitted 
apparently at that trial, then rearrested and re and convicted a couple of years after that uh, in the great persecution of Nero. So, all right, he's sending this to the Holy One. Some translation says to the saints, and this always makes people crazy. Uh, to the saints, uh, if you're in a state of sanctifying grace, you're a saint. You're consecrated to God. You belong to God. Uh, it may be a saint with a small s in certain cases, like my own, a very small s. But the idea of the saints, I don't know why this bothers people so much. It just means someone who is consecrated to God, the holy ones, uh, the saints. And and the canonized saints, the recognized saints are, are saints with a capital S. That's it. Um, people get mightily exercised when you talk about St. Michael. Well, he was an angel. Why are you calling him a saint? Because he's consecrated to God. That's all it means. The word sanctus means consecrated, dedicated. Uh, so there you go. All right. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, um, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus uh, and the hope you have reserved in heaven. So um, the thing about this greeting that... that um, intrigues me of this you've already heard through the word of truth the gospel that has come to you just as in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing this is really optimistic because the church was tiny at this writing it was it 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 didn't have more than 10 or 20,000 people in it according to if i remember properly according to dr rodney stark a sociologist and he he does hard sociology he looks at grave markings and tombstones and lists. It isn't just speculation on his part. And the church was a tiny segment of Judaism, which was a segment of the Roman population. Jews were no more than 10% of the empire, but they were close to that, but they were no more than 10%. And Christians were a minuscule percent of the perhaps 7 million Jews in, in the world at the time. So um, not many folks. But he, he has that optimism, and so often um, we forget that that when we look at the times and we get all nervous about the situation of the church, this is nothing compared to, to what went before. Uh, the Lord the Lord has a way of taking care of his church, and, and we have to trust uh, him to do that. So, well, it's interesting. He calls himself, uh, um, well, he calls Epaphras. Uh, who he calls him a trustworthy, he calls him our fellow slave. And, and that really is the word in Greek, slave, doulos. Uh, the title slave was, was very prestigious in the ancient world. Our Blessed Mother calls herself the slave of the Lord. Um, Moses is a slave of the Lord. Paul calls himself a slave of the Lord. Um, that's... Uh, a title of great dignity for Christians. And uh, then he, he calls him a fellow minister, and that word is diakonos. Uh, he calls him a fellow deacon. And remember the word diakonos means table waiter. It's a specific kind of slave. A, a diakonos wasn't necessarily a slave, uh, a table waiter, but usually he would have been a slave. And so St. Paul is putting himself, he's calling himself a slave and a busboy. Um that's great humility in the eyes of the world. And again, I've shared with you so many times about how our God is a humble God. He's sovereign. He is all-powerful. 
but he lets us defy him for the sake of love because he loves us and wants us to freely love him. He's given us the freedom to defy him, omnipotent and uh, eternal uh, though he is. So I think that that should reflect in our own lives, that we, we need to to understand that we are slaves and busboys or waitresses. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, all of this uh, bruja about about ordaining women to the diaconate, and it seems that there were women deacons, but not ordained, and they didn't participate in the liturgy in the early days of the church. But if we started to call it by by the name in 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 Greek, you know, start calling, you know, the, this fellow is an ordained busboy. Uh, the Reverend o the Reverend Mr. O'Leary, the Colonel of Truth, instead of calling him a deacon, I call him an ordained busboy. Well, ordained waitress. Well, you think that would fly? Oh, we're going to ordain her a waitress. Well, I beg your pardon. You see, these are terms of great humility, and sometimes when we think about ordination, we don't think humbly, and we are ordained to service. And I think I shared this with you a while ago, a couple of weeks ago, that I'm a deacon. I'm also a presbyter, a priest. Uh, and every bishop that you meet is a deacon. The, the, the fundamental ordination, in other words, the foundational ordination of the sacrament of holy orders is the diaconate, the waitership, the, the servanthood. I couldn't be a presbyter, a priest, unless I was first ordained a deacon, a waiter. And a bishop must be ordained first presbyter and before that deacon. Uh, I've shared this also with you that, that traditionally the bishop wears two vestments. He wears a dalmatic, which is proper to the deacon. It has its arms free, so the deacon can do the heavy lifting. And he wears the chasuble over it, which is the vestment proper to the presbyterate. The bishop is the head deacon and the head priest in a diocese. That means he's the head servant, he's the head elder. He has both functions. I'm, I'm, I'm just an elder in service of him. And the two wings of the episcopate are the wing of presbyterate or, or, or uh, fatherly guidance, and the other is the, the wing of diaconate or, or table service. And it's very important that we realize that these are, that the holy orders is a calling to great humility. And, um, we forget that. I forget that. So maybe I'm just reminding myself of this. All right. Let us go now to the gospel. Uh, let's see here. This is Luke, the fourth chapter, the 38th verse and following. After Jesus left the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon. Now, this is very interesting because this is in Capernaum. Uh, I believe it's in Capernaum. And, um, uh, uh, there is a, a building which is called the house of, of Simon Peter. And it's just down the street from the synagogue. Of course, everything's just down the street. It's a small town. Um, but there is an interesting building that uh, was expanded into a church. And there's a room in the center of it, which seems to have been a very special room. It was plastered over and there's graffiti all over it, uh, asking Peter and asking the Lord for mercy. Uh, it's thought that this was the house of Simon Peter, which was expanded into a church. I had the privilege of saying mass there. It was a very moving experience. Uh, it's a church built over it with a, gl a glass floor. So you can see down into the, 
the house of Simon Peter. And it, it's pretty good archaeology and probably the real thing. So, uh, well, the next thing we see here is, oh dear, there's uh, um, a mother-in-law. And to the best of my knowledge, you can't have a mother-in-law unless you are married. This means that Simon Barjona, who was called Peter, was a married man. Now, you will find people who say, yeah, but but um, as soon as he was made uh, an apostle, um, his wife and he ceased uh, having intimacies. How do they know that? Well, because. How do they know that? Where is it written? Uh, there are people in Antioch who claim to trace their background, their descent, to Simon Peter. Uh, remember, he was Bishop of Antioch. And uh, we read in uh, St. Paul's, I believe, first letter to the Corinthians that Peter and uh, the others traveled about with a Christian uh, sister. In other words, the word was, it meant wife. They, they seem to have traveled with their wives. Uh, well, of course, they, they lived as, as... How do you know that? I, I don't know that. But um, I, and I, I think celibacy is a very useful thing. Um, but you got to remember that it is, it is not integral. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble here. But it's a very useful thing because, uh, especially in the West, oh, I've, now I'm off the topic. But in the East... Um, priests to this day are married. And uh, people will point out to me, yes, but some of the early councils, they talked about this, the early synods, how you can't be married and all that sort of thing. It was pretty much a slow development. They, if, if people from the very beginning had assumed that Christian clergy would be celibate, they wouldn't have had to uh, try to enforce it. In the East, they keep their wives. In the West, we, as, as, as Roman civilization collapsed, increasingly we got the clergy from monasticism, or from monks, from monasteries, and monks were celibate. Now, there is a tendency among some people to look at marriage as inferior. We Christians do not look at marriage as an inferior vocation. What happens is when you give something up, you don't give up something bad. In Lent, you know, somebody asks you, well, in Lent, are you going to stop uh, uh, beating your wife? Is that what you're giving up for Lent? Well, that's you shouldn't be beating your spouse to begin with. In other words, you don't give up something bad as a fast. You give up something good. Food is good. Uh, and you eat less of it. You give up something good. Monks gave up the marital state because it was something good and desirable and holy. And I think we need to, to understand that, that, that uh, our, our disposition to celibacy is, I don't believe, is simply a statement that somehow the celibate life is better. It is, it is better in the sense that it is chosen as a, a, an offering to the Lord. But if we marry in the right way, as St. Paul says, we're offering that to the Lord too. So... Just some thoughts on it, and, and I don't want to get in an argument with anybody. Okay, moving along here. Um, the uh, um, Jesus, this is, well, first of all, I've said, I think I said this yesterday, that the demons came out of, out of many shouting, you are the son of God. The devil is very comfortable 
with the divinity of Christ. It's the humanity of Christ with which he is not comfortable. The title son of man is a heavenly being come to earth. And the devil is quite happy if if we will just keep God in heaven and uh, God will mind his own business. Uh, the devil thinks this world belongs to him, but it doesn't. The scripture says elsewhere that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah, of his Christ. Uh, the devil is fine with Jesus being the son of God. It's it's the son of man that he doesn't want him to be. He doesn't want him to, to, to be fooling around down here uh, where the devil is is in charge, at least the devil thinks. So that's why he is so comfortable calling him the Son of God. Now, Jesus didn't allow them to call him the Messiah. He he rebuked them and didn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Why would he do that? Shouldn't he have a big sign, I'm the Messiah? No, because you see, when there were lots of messiahs, somebody would say, I'm the messiah. And then people would run home, get a sword and kill a Roman soldier and the streets would run with blood. Jesus was not that kind of messiah. He wasn't what they were expecting. And he's darn well not what you and I are expecting. He is more than we are expecting. And uh, he, he rebuked these demons because they could use his messiahship to cause violence and strife. That's, that's, it's called the Messianic secret. Well, Jesus went off to a deserted place. The crowds came looking for him, and he says, I'm not here to serve you, except that I'm serving the Father. In other words, God had given, his heavenly Father had given him a task, and it wasn't to make their lives more convenient. It was to preach the good news. And the, even the miracles that he worked were a kind of preaching, a kind of prophetic utterance. So uh, I think that's very important to understand uh, that that we think God's supposed to make our lives easier. No, he's supposed to preach the kingdom to us, to tell us about God's nature and to bring us into that nature. He isn't He isn't there to make our lives easier. He's, he's in, oh, he does. <laughs> he's made my life easier, believe me. But that's not his purpose. His purpose is to make us holy. And sometimes, especially at the beginning and sometimes at the end, holiness is a bit of a struggle. All right, let's go. Uh, I think we need to talk about the current mass hysteria. Gather the people, enter the feast. All are invited, the greatest and least. The banquet is ready. What a nice song. Another lovely waltz to entertain us while we endure <laughs> long sermons from mystical Germans who preach from 10 till 4. Yeah, the voice in my head just thought I said I thought I might like that. Yeah, another waltz. Have you ever heard of the dialogue mass? This is something I vaguely remember from my childhood, that uh, when I was a boy, we still kind of had the, the idea that you went to Mass and you kind of said prayers and you prayed. And I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. However, um, the, the dialogue Mass reminded people that they were supposed to be in a involved with the praying of the mass. We didn't do that. We had altar boys. You sat or knelt and you just looked and uh, you might say the rosary or you might read a pious book, uh, but 
you just attended Mass. The, the altar boys were the ones when the priest said, Dominus Fobiscum, the altar boys said, Et cum spiritu tuo. Very interesting. One of the things that people don't realize is that it was against the rules uh, to have bilingual missiles, hand missiles, uh, you know, Latin vernacular. Uh, they were forbidden uh, uh, because one of the hallmarks of the Reformation in the 16th century was we did it in German or English or something. And so uh, the church was very worried about uh, creeping heresy, so just better do it in Latin. And as I said, if you could read, you could probably read Latin at that time. So it wasn't a, a real restriction. They they were trying to say, well, Latin's good enough. Don't do it in German or English or French or, or Italian. Just keep it in Latin. The Germans, my people, in the 19th century said, nah, they're going to do it anyway. And uh, they, they, uh, the church gave authorization to quietly follow the Mass in the vernacular. And that's what we did when I was a kid, if you were with it. This is interesting, this idea that Mass is a dialogue. That was not recognized or realized until rather recently. I think that's important to understand. And, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium that I'm talking about a lot, that's its emphasis. Its emphasis, uh, it always intrigues people when, when I tell them that there's nothing in the Vatican Council about turning the altar toward the people. And in the, in the rubrics of the Mass, in, in the Roman Missal, the current Roman Missal, it assumes that, that you're facing away from the people for certain parts of the Mass. What? Yeah, that was liturgical movement and just a sort of a fashion. You can say Mass facing the people, but the Missal expects you to be facing away. Cause in those, and I think it makes great sense personally, but obey your bishop. That is more pleasing to God than, than other things, remember? Obedience is more pleasing than sacrifice. Big biblical thing. So obey your bishop. However, my opinion is that when you're talking to God, you're part of the congregation, you face... Uh, turn toward the Lord, or ad orientum, whatever you, you want to say. Uh, when you're talking to people, you turn toward the people. It makes perfect sense. And that's not what Sacrosanctum Concilium is about. Sacrosanctum Concilium doesn't talk about, uh, let's have four hymns and, and uh, we'll have tango music and the waltz. It'll be nice. It doesn't say that. What it does say is, the Mass should be participated in fully by the congregation. In other words, the dialogue Mass uh, is, is, was really the theme of Sacrosanum Concilium. And I think that is very important because we've gotten away from the dialogue Mass. We now have the really big show Mass. You know, the priest improvises so that you don't know what's going on. Uh, and uh, and the choir sings these glorious uh, creations that you can hum along with maybe, but you don't know the words. Um, we're back to a non-participatory mass. We might as well be doing, you know, part of it was the reaction to these. And this is going to sound like heresy to people. The Mozart masses, the Brahms, the Schubert, the Bach masses. These were all big deals, these wonderful performance masses. Well, we're back to performance masses, and that was not what the council wanted. So once again, I'll end this current harangue by saying I am longing 
for the uh, changes of the Second Vatican Council and the liturgy to be implemented. We haven't implemented them yet at all. All right, let's go to a break. I'll come back with some letters, and we'll uh, uh, take calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Listen, I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bear, man. I breathe the mountain well, air, man. I've traveled, I've had my I haven't been air, everywhere. But I've been a lot of places. I was in a part of Germany looking for for the uh, site of the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, and we had some car issues, and I stopped by a, uh, a, a gas station and, and my bad German and tried to communicate. And I said, you know, we're American tourists. She looked at me and she said, what are you doing here? So I've been everywhere, just some obscure places. That said, let's go to letters. And, of course, when I got to the place, the Tudor first Forest Scholars now think I was in the wrong place. Oh, well. Okay, there I got a letter from Jackie uh, about, uh, you know, she's looking for a traditional mass, you know, and, you know, uh, I, I have to admit, I, I love the mass in all its forms. Give me a Byzantine mass, give me a traditional mass, give me a Novus Ordo mass, said beautifully. Um, you know, well, she's talking about, she's gotten out of, uh, she's gotten out of out of the habit of going to mass. Um, well, uh, she tried to go back to a mass in person, and oh, the talking in the pews, the priest waiting while the cantor sings another verse of a favorite song, uh, constantly changing the music for the Gloria, holy, holy, and Alleluia, so you can't follow it. Um, so she's just wondering. She's found a beautiful mass. Uh, uh, in St. Paul, I'm assuming St. Paul, Minnesota. Are we sinning if we opt for the St. Paul Mass online? And then in parentheses, are you going to tell me to offer it up? Yes, I'm going to tell you to offer it up. Um, that that uh, Mass online is not a substitute for Mass. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, in the screw tape letters about how you know, you you go to a church and you get a copy of a hymnal with bad hymns, and you have to sit with people who normally you wouldn't wouldn't even want to associate with in the grocery store. And you know, you know, I think that we can't give up. I really do. So, you know that, um, and the mass is the mass is the mass. And um, you know, if if you can't because of COVID, if you can't go to mass, then do it online. But if you can, please go to Mass, even if it's not one that that is to your taste. That's my whole point in this Mass hysteria thing. Who cares about your taste? I don't think Calvary would have been either. You go to worship God. And I, I think we need to make Mass uh, what the Council wanted it to be. And I think we need to make it beautiful because beauty attracts youth. Not beauty and truth, but beauty and youth. Young people are looking for beauty and for tradition. They're looking for roots in, an in a rootless time. And the more novelty we introduce, in my experience, the less young people are impressed. They may like it for a few times, then it gets boring. All right, that's my, that's my theory. All right, let's go to another letter. 
and stop me before I preach again. Okay, uh, this is from uh, Jim, uh, who who uh, is enjoying the mass hysteria segments. Um, I translated your considerations to my attendance at Mass and the two songs during Mass, Offertory and Communion, excluding processional and recessional songs. The Offertory song text was based on Psalm 12. The Communion song was based on several biblical texts. Is that what you're referring to when you say songs during Mass should be biblically based? Not really, Jim. I really think we should be singing the Psalms. The Psalms are songs written by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and as such, they are better than songs written by aging Jesuits, though they're wonderful people, I'm sure. Um, you know, all the new songs that are 60 years old, they're getting tiring. The Psalms are eternal, and the Psalms are part of our conversation with God. Mass is supposed to be a dialogue, a conversation with God. And if we say, don't talk, we'll write a nice song that'll be like what you said. You know, think about it. We have... Eight snippets of scripture in the mass, and I'm going to talk more about this uh, during during the the appropriate time. But you know, well, let's not sing all of those parts of the Bible. Let's sing let's sing some nice hymns that have a nice waltz rhythm and make me feel good. No, listen up. God is speaking. I don't want him to talk. I'd rather sing a nice song. Meh, humbug. All right, moving along here. <laughs> That's what I think. Okay. Um, this is from Charles, Charlie, about, uh, he heard on one of the shows about how Satan hates man because God allowed man to create more eternal beings. Yeah, you read that in the book of Ecclesiasticus. It was through the envy of the devil that death entered the world. When a man and a woman come together, they can create, not out of nothing, but they create something that's eternal. The human body is eternal, we believe, because of the resurrection, that this mortal body is the seed of something immortal. And God did not share that creativity with the angels. Angels do not have children. Jesus says that when he says they will be like angels in heaven, neither giving nor taking neither taking nor giving in marriage. The devil can only steal our children. The devil hates the creativity, both artistic and uh, uh, biological, uh, that God has given humanity. And that's why the devil hates children and hates art. And that's why in our age, no one is having children and art is meant to shock instead of to inspire. So I hope that answers your question, Charlie. And thanks for writing. Thanks for listening. How are we doing time-wise? I think i got time for another letter. Let's see here. Uh, let's see here. This is one I wish I could answer. It's from Trisha. A couple days ago, you said we can't be a preacher in our homes. After putting my three cradle Catholic sons through college, they've decided they don't believe in God. Um, it's difficult as a parent to see them go down this road, uh, especially when it comes time to choose a spouse and have children. Please advise on this. I wish I could, how to get them back in the path to Christ. I wish I could. I wish I knew. Maybe... Uh, I, Maybe uh, uh, Patrick Madrid knows more about this, but on the other hand, I think his kids are all active in the church. What do you do? I think Patrick Madrid on his show the other day said something very profound about a kid who was lying. Uh, instead of reading the riot act, he advised a mother to let her daughter know that what this meant and that she was hurt by it. 
I think that's great. When I was a kid, uh, I think I've shared this story. It was kind of it's kind of, it's kind of emotional for me. But uh, I'd received my first communion. We lived near the church, and we were pious. And you know, we went to daily mass if we could. And if my father couldn't go, if he work scheduled in law, mother didn't go either. She made him breakfast. But the kids would go to mass before church. It was the fifties. That was not uncommon. And uh, one day I'm watching Bugs Bunny cartoons on the TV, and uh, Mom hollers and said, Richard, are you going to Mass this morning? And I said, no, Mom, I broke my fast. It was only a three-hour fast, but I broke my fast. And she said, what did you have? I said, I had an orange. And she called me into the kitchen, and she pointed into the garbage can. And she said, Richard, there are no orange peels. And she had a tear in each eye. And she said, now go finish watching cartoons. She could have read me the riot act and grounded me. That has stuck with me these 70 years, almost 70. Um, you know, I think if you let the kids know you love them, and that's why you want them to go to heaven, because if they continue this way, they won't. There's a heaven, there's a hell. And, um, you know, the resource of, of faith for this life, it isn't going to be yours. But worse than that, eternal life is not going to be yours. And I ache because of that. Let them know that. And that's it. You know, and pray for them and be the best possible Christian you can be. After kids are raised to a certain point, um, all you can do is, is when, when, I always say when you can't speak Christ, you can be Christ. When they're in a crisis, they'll ask you for prayer. And then pray with them. Don't pray for them. Pray with them. Uh, if your kid calls you and say, Ma, you know, I don't know if I believe in this stuff, but would you say a prayer for me? Yes. Close your eyes if they're not driving. I'm going to pray for you right now on the phone. You pray with someone, you've led them to Christ. You pray for them, well, you've done a, a job for them that they should have done themselves. Evangelism is bringing people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And if you pray with people, that's what happens. So, um you know, instead of reading the riot act, I would share your broken heart with them. Uh, all right, that's my thought. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. All right, let's go to a break, and we'll come back with a word of the day and phone calls. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Oh, I love those hills above Virginia. From those blue ridge hills I did roam. When I die, won't you bear me on the mountain? Far away to my blue ridge mountain home. I love this stuff. All right, let's go to the word of the day. Very interestingly, Jesus goes from the synagogue to Simon Peter's house, and he stands over his mother-in-law and rebukes the fever, and it left her. He rebuked a fever? Um, that's very interesting. That that We see this in the scripture quite a bit. Moses was told to speak to the rock. Jesus rebukes a fever. Well, the word of the day is rebuke, and, and the word in Greek is epitomal, and it means it can mean to honor. It means to measure out a due measure or to censure. You know, I'm a, I had a buddy who was uh, very Pentecostal, and uh, he, he believed that you're rebuked to illness. And uh, he came up to you one day and said, Father Simon, you got an aspirin. I've been rebuking this fever, or I've been rebuking this headache all day long. 
He should have just come got the aspirin in the first place. But this idea of rebuking a fever or speaking to a rock, um, why do we do that? Because words do have power. And what this really means is to, to, to esteem it suitably. You know, that, that it isn't just uh, scaring the fever. It is, it is speaking of the fever, what the fever is. Jesus said, fever, you got no power around me. And we need to do that. <laughs> we need occasionally. I never drive by a, uh, uh, um, uh, a store, an adult bookstore, without rebuking Satan. I never do. I just have it. I mean, and and I think we need to get used to that. Uh, to to speak to things, it's biblical, and to rebuke that thing when it's appropriate. Uh, you know, I in Jesus' name, I rebuke this illness. That's that's something we don't do, but it's it's in the biblical bag of tricks. Try it sometime. I remember um, <laughs> for years I drove by this store. I think it was on Western Avenue in Chicago, and I rebuked the store. Eventually, it turned into a candy shop. So <laughs> I don't know if my rebuking had anything to do with it, but well, we have a power in 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 our faith that we never use. We have a power to bless, and we also have a power to curse. Use it wisely and sparingly. You don't curse people, but you can curse illness. You can curse sin, um, and you can. Tell the devil where to go, because um, the devil, you know, I'm not saying that when you're sick, you're possessed. However, there is a continuum between uh, uh, that relates, I think, all things that are evil. Uh, and we have this amazing right and even duty to rebuke things that are out of order. Uh, just a thought. <laughs> Who knows? All right, let's go to phone calls. That was weird. <laughs> That's weird, too. Jeff from Burnsville, Minnesota. Are you with us, Jeff? I am. Thank you for taking my call, Father. Um, I was wondering. Good. I'm I, glad um, to. Just, <laughs> I uh, recently went to uh, one of the SSP masses, masses for the first yes. time. And I found it incredibly reverent. Yes. And it hit me as I was there. Yes. This is the mass of Teresa of Avila and Thomas Merton and St. Mm -hmm. Francis of Assisi. I was just... I was enthralled. I, you know, I wasn't used to being on my knees for two hours, but I was, you know, I was, yeah. it was, I was the most wonderful experience I'd ever experienced in my entire life. And I kind of find myself going, I go to the Norvus Ordo, but I also go to this one, but it seems like after the pandemic, so many, you know, we don't even get confidier anymore during our masses out here. It just seems like, you know, we don't pray the rosary before mass anymore. And, you know, I go here and they're praying the rosary before mass. I hear all the prayers. I mean, I just, you know, it was just, I, I just really, well, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. It's, it, was it was lovely. It was so beautiful. It was lovely. Now, there are places uh, where you can go to a mass that is traditional and uh, approved by a bishop. Uh, you might have to drive a, a ways. But this isn't the mass of St. Teresa of Lisieux. This isn't the mass of the Curie of Ars. They were absolutely committed to obedience. Now, I have a great respect for, for a lot of people I know in SSPX, the Society of Pius X. However, to say that that's the mass of ages, you have to understand that, read First Kings, uh, uh, or rather First Samuel, the 15th chapter, 
Rebellion is a sin like unto witchcraft. Obedience is pleasing to the Lord. And if, if you feel a calling in your life to a mass that's more traditional, you might have to drive a couple hours. But to say that this is the mass of ages, it is the mass of ages without the virtue of perfect obedience. Now, as I say, I have great respect for that. And I think that uh, a lot of those people at uh, Pius X are very sincere and they do have a sense of reverence. However, there's an old contemporary Christian song which says, um, uh, why carry water uh, to the ocean? Carry it to the desert. You know, if this mass makes you feel good, I don't care. <laughs> the whole thing about this mass hysteria business is how I feel at mass. You see, that's what the Novus Ordo problem is. It's people's, I like that song. Can you play that song at mass? It isn't playing the golden oldies or your favorite pop tunes. We're there to worship God. And just because a traditional mass makes me feel good, and believe me, I love the traditional mass. I grew up in it. But we're called to a spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, when I see people who have taken their ball and gone home, they're lost to the wider community. Um, and that worries me. You know, I would advise you to, to, to uh, find a, a, a church near you that makes you utterly crazy. Um, utterly crazy and you don't like it and go there get to know the priest very well get really involved and see what you can do for the good you sound like you're fairly young and uh, there will be reforms of the reform and we need people who are involved for it you know get involved where you're needed not where you need to be does that make sense to you I know it's just not what you want yeah. to hear um, no, no, it's not what anybody wants to hear. It's not what I want to hear, but we live in tough times and I don't know what's going to be left of the church, uh, after the second, now we're in the second wave of COVID. I don't know what's going to be left. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the church is visibly diminished and it's going to be even more diminished in, in another year of this. Now we're putting on, we're putting our masks back on. Who knows? We are in tough times and we need people are committed. So I hope that helps a little. It does. God bless you, Father. God bless you. It gives you something to think about, and I, I wish it were otherwise. But all right, let's go. Uh, who we got now? Who we got now? Ryan from Arizona. Are you with us, Ryan from Arizona? I am. My call. Good. What can I do for you? Well, I was just curious. Um, so speak of the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, um, the first question would be, how did they consummate their marriage? And if their marriage was to go before an annulment, would it be an improved annulment? They did not consummate their marriage, uh, except in a spiritual sense. It was a true marriage, but our Blessed Mother, we believe, and we, we get this from the earliest days of the Church, our Blessed Mother remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. That Mary and Joseph did not have, uh, uh, they had a, what we call a fraternal marriage. They were his brother and sister. And the evidence for that is that Mary stood alone at the foot of the cross. The biblical evidence for it is Mary stood alone at the foot of the cross. And this situation was not uncommon. 
there were young women, especially among the Essenes, uh, with whom uh, I suspect that our Blessed Mother's family had contact, who dedicated themselves to the Lord. We read about that uh, in the book of Leviticus. And what they would do, because they were in convents, they would marry them to an older relative to take care of them, because a woman alone couldn't happen. So our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph lived a fraternal relationship. It's a true marriage, and the grace of marriage comes to it. However, it is not consummated. So I hope that that helps. So... Um, well, Father, there you go. Um, Let us, yes, what? So, um, with the, according to the definition of marriage, with procreate, I mean, how do we resolve that issue, I guess? Well, not all marriages procreate. The, 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 the fertility of marriage is present even when people are unable to have children. You see, a stable pair of people who respect the marriage vow create a society in which children are safe. You know, this idea, well, we can just get divorced when we feel like it, that creates an unstable, unsafe society. We're living in a time which is epically lonely. Uh, loneliness, this is some, some theoreticians say this is the loneliest period in human history between uh, screens and masks and divorces. Uh, that that uh, people who are unable to have children still have a real marriage, even though they cannot procreate, uh, because they are creating a society in which children are safe. And it is not necessary to have children to have a true marriage. Uh, um, when... Uh, you fill out the papers for marriage, one of the things you have to say is you will give your spouse the right to have children. Not you'll give your spouse children, because you can't predict that. If, for good reason, a man and a woman marry and never intend to consummate their marriage, but they're married in church, if one of them changes their mind, the other must acquiesce, because they have given the their spouse the right to have children. Uh, so... Um, but but by mutual agreement, uh, in unusual circumstances, it is still a marriage um, uh, when people don't have relations. So I hope that helps a little. It's uh, it's contrary to the way we think <laughs> these days. So hope that helps. Who have we got now, dear voice in my head? Pamela from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Are you with us? Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. I have a strange what can I do for question you? for you. Oh, good. The best kind. Um, recently, um, my husband passed away three months ago. Oh, um, sorry. But I've so never sorry. been mad at God. I, I, thank you, Father. I've never been mad at God. However, I know some people, like my own mother, she was angry at God for a while. Of course, she came mm -hmm. back, you know, the church. But what happens in yeah. that period of time when you are mad at God and then you should die in an accident or Jesus would come back? Would, would God, you know, God, you're still a Christian, but you're just kind of mad at God. What happens to us? Well, it depends entirely on what you do. You see, the, the, we talk about mad, angry. It's a feeling. 
and I'm always talking about good old C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters, and he makes the point that the devil wants us to feel pious. God wants us to be pious. The devil wants us to feel forgiving. God wants us to be forgiving. So I can feel mad at God and still love him, just as you can be mad at a spouse and still love him or her. You know, that, that uh, if your anger with God ends up in your denying him, then you got trouble. But if your anger with God ends up with your yelling at him and going to Mass so he'll hear you yell at him more clearly, that's still loving him. You know, that think of it, as, you know, that, that as the mystics do, that there's this marriage between uh, the, the, the soul and God. That every every Christian, male or female, is a bride at prayer, and uh, you can be mad at your spouse and still love him. You know the relationship doesn't end, but if you give him the cold shoulder and then never talk to him again, well, that will end end the relationship. So does that help? Yes, you're so wise, Father. <laughs> oh yes, I'm definitely a wise laughing. guy. That's true. No, I really appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you, Father. You're a real blessing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's an honor. It, and, and blame God. I mean, <laughs> uh, if I have any good ideas, it's the poor Holy Spirit being desperate so that I don't say something stupid on the radio. That's why I start with the prayer of the Holy Spirit. But thanks so much for your kindness. God bless you. Who we got now, dear voice in my head? Ed from Modesto. What can I do for you? Hi, Father. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Okay, Father, so the East Churches, like they make the sign of the cross and some of the Orthodox Church, they go from mm-hmm. right to left. Yes, uh, and, I've yes, asked and we go left to right. Say, yeah, we go, and I've asked, they say, because Jesus said to the God, to the man who was crucified right, right next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's why we go from left to right. But why then we Catholics go from right and, to from left Yeah. What we're doing, that, that's, that's an, that answer has been kind of invented to explain the custom, probably. But what it seems that they're doing is they're reflecting the priest's blessing, whereas what we're doing is we're, when I bless, I go from, uh, well, let me see, I go from left to right. And the congregation isn't mirroring me, it's imitating me. In the Eastern Church, they they seem to be imitating the priest. That's what I heard. I'd have to research it more. But it's just a custom that developed over time, and, and people have, have tried to use it to add doctrinal weight, to give it doctrinal weight to point out that our side's right and their side's wrong. And that's a kind of silly pursuit. Um, I always say when someone from the Eastern Church says, we're the true church, I say, yes, and so are we. You're truly a church uh, because you got bishops and the apostolic succession. And speaking of truly the church, Drew is coming up and he does his best to keep it universal. 